Welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome back to Throwback Paperback. I'm Asia Bonilla. And this is Charles, your other host. And today we are discussing the second half of Percy Jackson and the Titan's Curse by Rick Riordan. We're a new podcast with the Nerd Party Network, and we're reading and rereading young adult books and sharing them with each other. Yep. As you already know, probably we're best friends, and we've wanted to share certain books with each other, so we turned it into a podcast. Asia read the Percy Jackson books growing up, and I never did, so we're reading those as our first series. She's rereading, and I'm reading for the first time. Yeah, so we've been pushing through the Percy Jackson series, and we're finishing the third book this week. And soon we'll be moving on to a series that Charles has read before, and I haven't. And part of the way this is set up is that the person who's new to the books will be giving a brief summary of our reading in case you didn't read along with us. Yep, I think we'll probably announce the next series as we enter the final book of Percy Jackson to give you guys some time if you need to get it from a library, if you want to read along. But we'll announce that once we move on to the final Percy Jackson book, so in a couple of weeks. But let's move into the summary for this week. We're discussing chapters 11 through 20 of The Titan's Curse. Our quick summary is that our crew gets out of D.C. and they travel west, of course encountering some obstacles and allies like a giant boar and the goddess Aphrodite shows up as well. They fight Talos, a project by Hephaestus, and Bianca, the new half-blood turned hunter, sacrifices herself during that fight, so she's lost after that. Our crew keeps traveling west, and they get to the Hoover Dam, where they're chased by some skeletons, but they manage to get away, another obstacle, and finally they make it to San Francisco. They have a fight with Dr. Thorne, and they meet Annabeth's dad. At this point, our crew is still Grover and Talia and Zoe and Percy. After, But Grover heads back to Long Island, so it's just the, the two half-bloods and Zoe, they meet Annabeth's dad, and they start traveling up mountain or ma- the mountain, Mount Tamalpais, to meet Zoe's sister and pet dragon. And then at the top of the mountain, we have a huge fight. Annabeth is trying to get freed. Luke fights with Talia. Atlas, or the general, fights with Aphrodite and Zoe, and Percy's holding the weight of the sky. Our good guys win, but Zo- Zoe is mortally wounded. And then finally, we have a council of the gods discussing truly entering the war with Kronos. And that kind of wraps up our book. So quickly, I'll give my first impressions. Mostly that I was unnecessarily complicating my predictions last episode. So that's my bad. Most of the easier ones that Asia came up with were true. And I liked this book generally a little better because it felt less episodic than the last ones. We haven't had sort of one chapter fights. I mean, we had the boar. But other than that... All of the chapters have sort of tied into the quest of this book rather than in the other book when we had the individual monsters. And I know they were there for world building and exposition, but I kind of enjoyed that this book was really plot driven of the plot of the arc for this book. Asia, what about you? What were your your impressions? My impressions were basically that I definitely was glad that we got a lot of answers right at the beginning of the reading. And I was definitely feeling a little bit triumphant because a lot of the predictions I made last episode did come true. So that was really nice to hear. But I also wanted to know if you saw any of those things coming because obviously I've read these books before, so I had a little bit more insight. So I was 
we'll talk about it later, but if you also found some of those parts predictable or not. Yeah. I mean, I think that we'll definitely get there. And I think that some of them were obvious and I'm sure we'll talk about those as we come to them. So starting in chapter 10, we hear right away that they are heading towards Alexandria, Virginia, which I just had to put down in my notes that I knew Charles was going to freak out because Alexandria is where he's from. So what did you write down, Charles? I wrote the same thing. I was like, it's my hometown. We discussed last episode how they were going to D.C. and the mall. And obviously, like, I go into D.C. a fair bit, but I'm like, my hometown is Alexandria, Virginia, and yellow line, blue line into D.C. So I just was very excited. Obviously, we didn't get there, but, you know, my, my, town, got a, my town got a little flag, so go team. So on our trip west, we get a lot of answers about the hunters and our female protagonists. Specifically, we learned that Talia had actually almost been recruited by the hunters, but she did not want to leave Luke behind. And Zoe told her that she'd regret her decision because Luke would ultimately let her down. And just, wow, was she right? And Talia ends up telling Percy that Annabeth was for sure thinking about joining the hunters, and she tells him to think about why she would want to do that. And I think that obviously points to the fact that Annabeth is probably worried that Percy is going to betray her just like Luke betrayed Talia. So that was just a lot of answers at once and very interesting. Absolutely. And I think that ties into what we talked about last week, that Annabeth hasn't really had men that have been really worth it in her life. And especially Luke, as someone she was super close to, totally get why she would be disappointed by men. So totally get where Annabeth would be coming from. And we get that answer about San Francisco. We were asking why half-bloods, demigods can't live in San Francisco, and it's because the Mountain of Despair which is the ancestral home of the Titans, is in San Francisco. And so it attracts a lot of monsters and the mist is very strong. So it makes perfect sense that that's why our half-bloods can't live there. Yeah, and I'm glad that as the book goes on, we get to have even more information about San Francisco since that's where they're heading and where a lot of the action happens. But moving on to Percy's dream, I think this has to be like his 10th dream in the book series so far. And I know Charles hates all of Percy's dreams. Probably. But this one actually, like, direct correlation to what was going to happen in the next chapter, so I didn't mind. Good. But basically, Percy has a dream about a girl who we later find out is Zoe, and she is giving Anaclusmos, or Riptide, the sword, to an unnamed hero. So we know for sure that she is connected to that blade. She actually created the blade. So I just wanted to say I called it. And as I was reading this, I was thinking maybe Zoe is related to Poseidon in some way because she says that her her mother was a daughter of the ocean. So maybe she's like his grandchild or something. And But obviously she fell in love with this hero because she wants to help him fight this monster named Layden, which I also had assumed that this was the monster that they're all looking for. But obviously that didn't turn out to be correct. Yeah, but you were pretty close. Like you weren't 100%, but you were pretty close. Like yeah, the beast wasn't Layden, but... And I don't know if we got any confirmation that she's directly a Poseidon descendant. I think her mom is some sort of minor 
ocean water goddess, but um, but we didn't get a we didn't get a Poseidon necessarily confirmation, but we did get the Riptide connection, which is obviously the most crucial, and the Hercules parallel. And I'm this isn't spoiling since we finished the book, but she gave the blade to Hercules and he lets her down. So you absolutely called that out that it was a hero in the past that let her down. So there are a lot of answers in that chapter, actually. Not a lot in the next one, but we do start with a sort of a cute exchange between Bianca and Percy. They're sort of getting along really well. It's really charming. Yeah, I wanted to jump in here because Bianca basically explains to Percy how she's raised Nico their entire lives and she just wanted 24 hours without having to have the responsibility of being the big sister, but she actually chooses an immortal life of never being with him again And I just thought that was kind of dramatic. But we do find out that the hunters have like these bottomless bags and magical bow and arrows that just appear whenever they need them. So at least she got that pretty cool perk as being a hunter. Yeah, that's one of the cooler. They're also like incredibly good at archery out of nowhere. So they've got some cool perks for the hunters, but I agree. It seems like, yes, I'm tired of being a babysitter. But I'll just choose immortality. Seems like a pretty harsh decision that she made. But whatever. You go, Zoe. She won't have to deal with that decision for very much longer. So shortly after that, we get the scene with the giant boar. And apparently that's a blessing from the god Pan. And Zoe and Grover even say that they felt his presence at the arrival of the boar. So that was kind of a whole crazy scene. Yeah. I just want to be sure. So because we get that Pan is basically the god of nature and the wild. And I think that clearly, especially with that cliffhanger at the end of this book, we know that this is going to be figuring in for the rest of the series. I don't think we're going to get full answers on Pan until the end. But it's nice that we got another Pan reminder and that Grover is getting closer to finding some answers because it would feel sort of out of the blue if that was the last line of the book. And we hadn't gotten a reminder that Grover's objective is actually not in the war between Kronos and the gods. Grover's actually more interested in specifically the god Pan. So I'm glad that we had that little moment really quickly. But still, no real explanation. Like I said, we'll be building towards it. I think we'll get some answers in the last book. And then we get to chapter 12 already, which is basically just the chapter of Bianca. We do have our Aphrodite moment. And, okay, just another god that Percy has met. God who comes and searches Percy out. Okay, we get it. Whatever. But the rest of chapter 12 is basically just about Bianca. We get confirmation that she was trapped in the Lotus Hotel, like our crew was in the first book. Her knife manages to kill the skeleton zombie thingy. She clearly doesn't know anything about the DC Metro system. Because as I was reading it, she was like, it wasn't here... And it was because I it was I'm from DC. I knew it was founded in 1967, like in the Johnson presidency. So yeah, we find out that she's been out of commission since World War II. And this is again sort of jumping ahead. We find out at the end of the book that her parent, her dad is Hades. So it makes perfect sense that she can kill those dead skeleton things. Like that was it's a lot. And then she dies at the end of this chapter. Yes, that was another one of my predictions coming true because Bianca literally dies in the desert, the land without rain, 
inside of Talos, the giant metal man. And it ultimately makes sense that she died during that scene because her stealing of the statue for Nico is what set Talos off and caused the whole scene. Yeah, I felt as soon as we got into the desert, because we'd already, I'd kind of, at the end of the last episode, sort of accepted that Percy was the fifth member of the quest, quote unquote, even though, whatever. But as soon as they got to a desert, I was like, oh, someone's going to die in the desert. Like, it's it, that was just too easy of a line. It also makes sense why Bianca dies first, because she's one of the newest characters, so we're not as emotionally connected to her as some of our main characters like Percy or Grover, like we're not expecting them to die. So it makes sense for her to have died first. Absolutely. And it's like, we still have an essence of her anyway, because we still have Nico. So it's not even like we just introduce these new characters to get rid of them immediately. We still have them effectively. Yeah. But before we forget about Aphrodite, I wanted to talk about Percy's little meeting with her because the first thing Percy describes when he meets her is that she looks a little bit like Annabeth, and then she looks kind of like an actress he used to have a crush on. So I would say that definitely points to him having a crush on Annabeth, because I would assume with Aphrodite, part of her magic is that she kind of appears to you basically with what you find attractive. And then Aphrodite admits that she's been helping Percy out to get in on this quest because she's completely invested in this brewing love story between Percy and Annabeth and she wants Percy to save Annabeth and prevent her from joining the Hunters especially since Aphrodite isn't really a big fan of the Hunters because she doesn't believe in women giving up the possibility of love and lastly she warns him not to pick up anything in the junkyard so that's all the lead up for that it's more than a little brewing it's 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 fully there Well, whether Percy knows it or not, if he loves Annabeth, we definitely know that Aphrodite is rooting for their love story to work out. Absolutely. I would agree. Just another god making Percy a favorite. We have Hermes just showing up whenever he wants, helping Percy out. We have Apollo disguising himself as a homeless man, being like, I'm going to help you guys out, drive my car whenever you want. We have Aphrodite, who's like, you can go on whatever quest you want, as long as it's for the love of your life. Like, wow, the gods are really, they're, they're so shiny on Percy. I mean, it's Percy. He's pretty great. Okay, well, he's fine. I like Percy, too, but it's really funny that he's got, like, a whole squadron of god squad, like, god stands. I mean, he is the main character. Yeah, we're going to see in other books that we read in this pod that I don't think main characters normally get this much love. But this is a younger audience demographic, so it it makes sense that Percy would get as much favoritism as he gets. And then after we lose Bianca, we just move right along. Like, Zoe has a little bit of a moment where she's like, oh no, I thought she might be the lieutenant one day. But like, and this is another moment where it sort of revealed the age group that this was for. Because even though they just met this girl, like, Death is pretty traumatic, and there's very... I mean, we talked about this earlier when Percy's mom sort of vanishes. There's not a huge discussion of continuing impacts, but Percy's supposed to protect this girl, and she he found her, and she's really young, and he started to like her, and we just lose her really quickly, and they're all like, okay, we're going to keep going west. Well, I think for at least for Percy, as much as he was growing to like Bianca. I think his main goal right now is 
trying to save Annabeth. So as much as sad as he is about losing Bianca, I think he's like, we have to move on because they have to complete the quest, complete their mission of ultimately saving Annabeth. So I feel like he's been dealing with that grief so much that that kind of outweighs anything he'd feel for Bianca in this moment. Yeah, I just feel like that sentence could have been in there once. Just like, just because there's really no discussion of the trauma of like, oh, she's gone. But again, younger audience and got to keep the plot moving. Well, they knew they were going to lose people (laughs) on the quest. Well, they could have said that. They could have been like, one will die in the desert. And yep, they did say that. But they could have been like, one will die in the desert. So we shouldn't even feel bad. We knew we knew she was going to snuff it. Which is what Percy says. He even says that he should have never let her go in there. They knew they were going to lose somebody in the land without rain. He should have gone. But, you know, he didn't realize it until afterwards. So, gotta just keep going. (laughs) Moving right along, they get to the dam. Yes, and at the Hoover Dam, the tour guide that Percy runs into was definitely Athena. Reordering describes her as having startlingly gray eyes like storm clouds, so definitely Athena. I completely agree. I was like, that's got to be Athena, right? But then I feel like she would have told Percy in the end, because she didn't say it at the, when they were have their conversation at the end. I mean, I think Athena was focused on more important things like her disapproval of Percy's friendship with Annabeth, which was pretty sad and definitely heartbreaking for Percy. Yeah, and mom didn't give his, her approval yet. So sad. And Athena's standards are pretty high. But we also get this random mortal character named Rachel Elizabeth Dare, and she's somehow able to see through the mist and... She not only sees Percy holding his sword, but he she also helps Percy escape from the skeleton zombies, which I thought was just crazy. And I'm just so curious about her. I know Percy mentions it to Talia, and she just explains that, you know, there are some people who can just see through the mist, and there's no real explanation for it. But I'm just hoping we get more with her, because that was such an interesting concept especially since she helped him. Yeah. I think that I think that she'll come back. I hope she comes back because we do get her named. I feel like it'd be one thing if there's the person and Percy had that interaction. He asked Tali and then Tali was like, humans can see through the mist sometimes. That would have been fine. But because we got like a three name name for this character, I feel like she'll be back. And I like that we get a bit of a, a world building explanation that certain mortals are just like, they're a little wiser or they're a little more able to see through like Percy's mom and kind of Annabeth's dad. I mean, they didn't say that, but since he cut, he's like kind of in on the secret, it's implied like he can do the whole thing with melting down celestial bronze like and fight. Like, I think that he's kind of in on it as well. And I kind of like that because it makes the heroes a little more vulnerable. And I, I wrote down a quote unquote human, which, like, in the emotional connotative sense of the word human, it makes the gods and the demigods a little more vulnerable. And human, they're a little more... Because there are, there are people who can sort of see through the guise, which I think is really cool. And I hope we get Rachel Elizabeth Dare back at some point. And then we get some answers on the sea cow, or Bessie, as Percy likes to refer to it. And this cow serpent is actually the Ophiotaurus. 
And basically, whichever big three half-bloods sacrifices this very innocent animal, they'll have the power to destroy the gods. And they explain how this concept of by killing such pure innocence, it gives someone such evil power and they really want Talia to do it. Yeah, that's a that's a motif a lot across a lot of cultures, not just literature, but like killing virgins and killing innocents is a, a step of evil and power. Like there's some queen in the Middle Ages who like used to bathe in the blood of virgins because she thought it would keep her skin young. I can't remember her name right now. But we're going to, I'm sure any other, there'll be other books where we get, I mean, all sacrifices are basically like sacrificing something that's either weak or valuable, strong or valuable to gain something. So of course they would have this mythology in this world for the Ophiotaurus. And yeah, they want Talia to do it. And she almost does it. Yeah, that was definitely kind of pitiful on Talia's part. She just got way too caught up in the possibility of gaining power. Yeah, it was pretty pathetic. And then we get a really great Percy moment. So if anyone listening thinks I don't like Percy, I do. I would give him credit where it's due. He has to be the bigger guy. He asks Mr. D for help. And then Dionysus rocks it. Like, we've seen him as this total drunkard, total mess of a character. But, like, Percy's conversations with him must have gotten through when Percy whooped him last episode. Because he single-handedly destroys this army through a message. Through, like, a Zoom call. He's on a Zoom call, and he's like, obliterate. Awesome. I was... Well, he is still a god. Yeah. I, I imagine him, I know this isn't accurate, but if you've ever seen the Disney Hercules movie and the guy who plays, what's his name? Uh, I know exactly who you're talking about. The trainer of heroes, the little fat guy. Yeah, I don't remember his name, but he's like a satyr. He's a satyr, yeah. I, yeah, he's got like a round belly and he's got like the little horns. Yeah, I don't imagine him having horns, but like I imagine him like floating around and just being drunk all the time. What a perfect depiction. Yes, that's literally what I think of every time Mr. D shows up. And then I was like, yes, you get it. You destroy that, um, what is it, a manticore. Destroy him. It was awesome. And then they figure out that they have to go up the mountain to see Zoe's sisters. And they end up going to Annabeth's dad, Dr. Chase, for help. And they meet him and her stepmom. And they both seem super nice and honestly kind of supportive. And the stepmom even tells Percy to make sure to tell Annabeth that she still has a home with them. So I thought that was really cool to hear, especially compared to all the terrible things we've been hearing from Annabeth. Yeah, and I really like that moment. There might be more that we don't know yet. And maybe her parents have drastically changed or they put on a facade for Percy. But as of now, we kind of have this material that Annabeth feels like she's excluded from the family but we get the family seem like they really support her and they really want her to be a part of it. So it kind of made me think, oh, is this like a bit of a teenage moment where teenagers vilify their parents? They take things too personally. I I expect there's probably more that we're missing right now. But otherwise, I thought that was pretty clever writing to have, you know, Annabeth misunderstand the advances of her family. 
And if anything, they could have changed with within the absence of Annabeth. They miss her and they realize what they're missing out on. So maybe that's also caused them to want to be more supportive because they don't want to lose her in their lives. And she's a pretty cool person. And as they're heading up the mountain, we get even more answers because Percy sees Luke's ship down in the water and he realizes from earlier that it makes sense why they were headed towards the Panop Canal because it is the only way to sail from the East Coast to California. So that makes sense. And then we find out once they're up on the mountain that Atlas is the general and Atlas is Zoe's father. So, of course, Atlas is going to kill Zoe like in the prophecy. The person who will die by their parents' hand is Zoe, which I kind of predicted that Zoe was going to die. I didn't predict this, but as soon as they revealed that Atlas was her father, it was definitely obvious. But what about you, Charles? What did you write down in your notes for that part? Yeah, that's basically what I wrote. I wrote, Atlas is the general. Atlas is Zoe's dad. She's going to die. Because, of course, I had the prophecy in my head. And I was... Last episode, I said that I thought that maybe it wouldn't be a godparent that would be the killing. And technically, I'm right, because Atlas was a titan. I mean, it was still the super powerful parent, so not really. But I'm glad that we didn't have Zeus strike down his daughter, whom last time he turned into a tree. I felt like that would have been harsh. But don't forget that Zeus might have tried to kill Talia with a lightning bolt when they were driving up to the mountain because a bolt comes and destroys their car. But Percy tells Talia that it's probably Kronos just trying to manipulate her into hating her dad even more. But who do you think it was, Charles? I think it was Kronos because I feel like if it was Zeus, he would have mentioned it. Or if Talia deep down felt like it was Zeus, she would have mentioned that when she chose to swear off her father, when she chose to join the hunt. I feel like if it was Zeus, it would have circled back again. But what do you think, Asia? Yeah, I also think that it was probably Kronos because I just feel like in the end, it would have been brought up in some way, whether that was Talia asking Zeus at some point But especially since I feel like we might never hear about this incident again, I think it will make sense. But if it was Kronos, that's honestly kind of terrifying because that means he is really gaining power, that he's able to create a lightning bolt to destroy Talia. Yeah, especially if we don't ever find out, if it's never mentioned again, I feel like we have to assume it's Kronos because sort of the last word is what Percy says. And if we never hear it again, then what Percy said is kind of our wrap-up of the lightning bolt, which makes me think that we're if we don't ever hear about this moment again, I expect that it probably is just sort of implied that it is Kronos. And yeah, you're absolutely right. That makes him very nefarious and strong. And then we're into our big mountain fight already. And I'll break it down just to, because it's kind of chaotic, and then we can go moment by moment if we need to. But essentially, we have... Talia and Luke fighting. First, Luke tempts Talia to join, but she doesn't. So she's, they start to fight, and she totally whoops him. Got him at knife point, or in her case, it's javelin point. And then Percy barely holds the weight of the world for like five minutes. No comment on that. Percy's so great. Percy's the main character. Percy's a wuss. And we have Zoe and Artemis tag-teaming Atlas. 
and Zoe gets smushed at the end. But our team does manage to win. Annabeth, the whole time, is fighting with a gag and her hand's tied. She's real struggling, but she gets out. She overcomes that that handcuff, that gag. She's so good. And then she wants to show Luke mercy, but he's a total prat, and he ignores her. Like, she offers to show him mercy, and it seems like Talia's going to grant it. And then he fights again, and Talia's like, uh-uh, pushes him. She decliffs him, and she was 100% justified in that. Yeah, but can we just talk about how Percy literally could barely survive a few minutes holding the sky up while, as far as we know, Annabeth had to have last, lasted at least a day. And then Artemis, I mean, I know she's a goddess, but still, she lasted forever. Like, the women in this book are just killing it. And the fact that for all the fighting, it's all female protagonists. It's Artemis fighting Atlas and Talia fighting Luke. So I just really enjoyed all that feminine power. Yeah, the women truly rock it. Like, and Artemis, I mean, she's a god, but she's been holding this guy for, what, three or four days at this point? She gets rid of this guy and she's jumping around. Like, you have to read the description again. She's, like, shape-shifting almost because she's so fast and she's absolutely crushing it like she is crushing it she you know she's talking to her grandpa no i guess atlas isn't her grandpa chronos is her grandpa but atlas is definitely he's much more senior than her because he's a titan and she is flying around him and zoe is lightning like she's lightning fast with her bow talia obviously obliterates luke Yeah, and women, you know, biologically have a much higher pain tolerance than men. Like, that's a scientific fact. So, the women totally rocked it. Yeah, they killed it. But the best man in this chapter is Annabeth's dad, who literally flies in in a plane to help them escape by shooting at the monsters with the celestial bronze bullets. And they escape into Artemis's silver chariot, which is pulled by deer. And Percy makes a comment about how, oh, it's like Santa Claus's sleigh. And Artemis is like, where do you think they got that legend from? Which I just thought was really cute. A nice little explanation. Yeah, that was some really, really cute world building to just throw that in. And right after that, unfortunately, Zoe does die. But Artemis turns her into a constellation, which I thought was super cool. And as much as we think Luke died going over that cliff, Annabeth believes that he's definitely still alive, which this makes Percy jealous because he thinks she still has feelings for him. And Percy really thinks Luke deserves to die. But Poseidon does verify that Luke is still alive and he has seen them re-getting back on the ship to heal back up. And I think this just also points to something I mentioned in the earlier episode was that maybe Luke has an empathy link with Kronos, which is why he has some kind of immortality and can't die. But we know that now that Luke is definitely alive and him and the army will be back in action by next summer. It sounds like he's got a horcrux. Like, he's just got a horcrux. It's, I mean, also, if, she, if he has an empathy link with Kronos, that's effectively a horcrux anyway. So, okay. Yeah, that was pretty, like, ugh. Yeah, I think Luke deserves to die. He's had enough chances to redeem himself, and I still feel like he's probably going to be redeemed, and Annabeth is going to choose Percy, and that's 
going to be fine. But Luke does not deserve it at this point. Like, unless he does some sort of double agent sabotage stuff to bring down Kronos, he has been offered many chances to see the light. And he has disappointed our crew every single time. So I think Percy is justified in his jealousy. And yes, we that brings us to the council because that's when Percy's feelings for Annabeth once again swell up. And I'll just quickly recap the council because again, a lot happening really quickly. Essentially, our three demigods and Grover listen to the council and the council's deciding whether or not they should take action against Kronos. They do decide to take action against Kronos, which is exciting. Apollo and Artemis are going to do some fun hunting, brother-sister bonding. Poseidon is like, I'm going to use all my sea monsters, destroy these fools. So we've got, we get some nice decisive action from the gods. And then nine out of the 12 of them decide to save and celebrate the heroes with Ares, Athena, and Dionysus abstaining. We also, Percy manages to convince them to let the Ophiotaurus survive. And really importantly, Artemis asks Talia to join the hunt, become her new lieutenant, and Talia accepts, saying she does not want to be the child of the prophecy. So Talia joins the hunt, but Annabeth does not. So I will say right now, Asia, you are correct that Zoe dying, that Talia becomes the new lieutenant. But I will say that it was sort of given away to me because you were asking earlier, like, whether things were obvious or not. Like, when they entered a desert, I was like, of course, Bianca is going to die now because they're in a desert. And when Zoe died, she literally says to Talia's like, yes, Zoe, Luke betrayed me. Men have betrayed me. And I was like, okay, well, she's she's going to she's going to join the hunt. So it, while it was still a twist because we keep thinking it's going to be Annabeth or we're led to think it's going to be Annabeth, the fact that Talia sort of readily accepts it very quickly we had enough proof earlier on, but it still was a shock. And that's when we get the moment where Percy, right before Artemis makes her announcement, Percy turns to Annabeth and is like, please, no, just because he cares about her so much and he really, really doesn't want to lose her, which I just thought was so sweet. Yeah. Annabeth has no idea because she's also in love with Percy and she just wants to be with him. So it would never occur to her to leave him to be some silver immortal goddess running around with deer. And pretty soon after, Percy has a very important moment with Athena, where Athena tells Percy that his fatal flaw is personal loyalty and that he would essentially sacrifice the world to save a friend, which is basically what he was willing to do to save Annabeth. And then, of course, we have the terrible line where she says that she doesn't approve of his friendship with her daughter, and that definitely hurts Percy's feelings because he does have very strong feelings for Annabeth. Yep. I just want to say I called the fatal flaw because I said a couple books ago when we were talking about fatal flaws, I was like, Percy's is going to be something disgustingly noble. It's going to be like he will take a bullet for everyone. And that's essentially what it is, is that he's so loyal. He's such a good dude. And Athena rips him a new one. She's like, book one. You did everything you could to save your mom. Book two, you did everything you could to save your goat friend. Book three, you did everything you could to save my daughter. That's not very wise of you. You're very predictable, Percy. <laughs> and I, like, and she's just so matter of fact. You know, I, as we've already said, I would definitely be an Athena kid. I'm, like, I loved it. I loved it. I was like, 
honestly put him in his place. And yes, I was correct about his fatal flaw. Yeah, which I understand what the Athena is saying, but I would definitely be with Percy that I think for me, I would also, loyalty is something like in those scenarios where would you save your best friend or your mom or your sister, or would you save a hundred people you don't know? I would always save the person closest to me, which I guess that's a fatal flaw. But for me, at least, I just know how Athena explains it. I just wouldn't want to have to be in that place of power where you have to make those hard decisions. And I'm sure that's how Percy feels too. This is Asia just saying that she would save me as her best friend. I'm just, I'm just protect. I've got, I've got a, I've got a, she- a human shield. Uh, well, maybe since you like Athena so much, you would agree with her. <laughs> okay, don't make me sound so cold, but. I mean, I'm not saying one's right or wrong. It just depends on the situation. That's why I say, and usually when you're in a position of power like that, you do have to make those hard decisions to sacrifice people you love. Yeah, I think that you're right. Because neither of them is necessarily wrong. It's just that Percy, because he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders, she's asking him to be careful. And she's not wrong. Also, Percy literally says, he's like, she will never make a mistake. And... I think that the only mistake she'll make is that he'll prove himself worthy of Annabeth, but I don't think that will be a mistake. I think he'll have earned it. Speaking of moms, Percy calls his mom. She's back with Mr. Blofy. I thought it was pronounced Blofus. I mean, I would just assume because the S would be... But Percy calls him Blowfish. (laughs) Blowfish sounds idiotic, and also if it's... Blowfish looks like it's French to me, and then the S would be silent. Uh, I guess. Blowfish. Okay, but we've also, earlier on, like, I wanted to write this down, but I cut it for time. At the beginning of this book, there's a character, when they go to the the school, and one of the characters, at the, like, the principal introduces himself, and Percy, and the name is a German name, and the name, Percy, like, says that he mispronounces it, and Percy's mispronunciation is completely off of what the, like, if someone were to read that name out loud, Percy's mispronunciation, like, the way he hears it, is completely wrong. So, I don't trust Percy when it comes to linguistics. I'm calling him Blofy because that sounds way more fun. Well, he is dyslexic, in case you forgot. True. Well, back to the scene with Percy's mom. I think both of those scenes in the book are just to highlight that Percy, you know, is growing up and he's starting to learn how to think for himself so he doesn't really need his mom as much and he just wants her to be happy and his mom is just starting to trust that he's going to make the right decisions on his own. I don't know if you really thought anything of those scenes, but I thought they were kind of random at first, but I think that that's why they were put in. I didn't actively think about it, but I completely agree. I think that especially because the first book, he is so motivated by his mom. But that's also because his mom is his only real family. Like, now he has a chosen family, and he has his dad, who kind of, like, loves him. His dad has taken such a shining to Percy. Plus, he has his half-brother in Tyson, and obviously has the love of his life, Annabeth. And then he's got his cousin, Talia, even though she was like, I don't want to be related to you anymore. Like, he's got a chosen family now, so he doesn't need to rely on his childhood family, which was just his mom. So I think that you're absolutely right that his mom is sort of playing a, he's transitioning into adolescence role and moving on from the nest. And that almost wraps us up. We get back to Camp Half-Blood. My girl Clarice is back. Thank goodness. She's almost pleasant. Not quite, but she's getting there. 
And then we have this huge fight between Percy and Nico. And Nico, besides being a child, throws this crazy temper tantrum. He's completely and utterly irrational. And in my notes, I literally wrote this down. I was like, he just caused a crack in the earth. He's Hades' son. And then Percy figures it out. What do you think, Asia? So before I dive into Nico, I just really wanted to go back to Clarice and how throughout the book, they've kind of mentioned that she's been on this top secret mission, but that's the only information we have. And at the end, Percy even mentions that she has a new scar on her face. So I'm really looking forward to the next book, getting more information on that. But I just want to take note. So talking about Nico, yes, he is a child of Hades, both him and Bianca were, and Percy explains how he believes they had to have been born before World War II when the oath was made for the big three gods to not have any more children. So technically, Hades did not break the oath. And we know this because how Bianca tells Percy how they got trapped in the Lotus Casino for probably like 70 years or something, which is totally crazy. But it totally makes sense that they're children of Hades because how Bianca was able to kill the skeleton warriors... And, and obviously he splits the earth in half. But Percy finds all this out and he doesn't want to tell anybody. He doesn't want to tell Chiron. He doesn't want to tell the gods, which I can understand the gods because the gods tend to react a little bit rashly and not really fully thinking it through. But I think they could have at least maybe told Chiron because when they come back empty-handed without him, Chiron even makes the joke that, you know, hopefully... He got eaten by a monster in the forest and doesn't end up joining Luke, which that's if he's just some random god's kid, but he's a god of the big three, so he could be the half-blood in the prophecy. So that's even terrible if Luke gets their Luke and his army gets their hands on him. It, they wouldn't need Percy. They could just kill Percy and use him. So I just, I don't know if that was the best idea, but I understand where Percy was coming from. Yeah, I would tell Chiron. I just, it's a bad idea. They specifically decide we're not, the three of us are going to keep this secret. And I'm like, just feels like not a secret that's worth keeping. Even if you don't want to tell the gods, because true, the gods are stupid and irrational. But like, Chiron is 100% on the god side. And he's a good resource. The like, and he knows the most about the prophecy since the prophecy was given to him. I just feel like, it's going to bite them in the butt for keeping this a secret. Yeah, because at this point, I just think that how the plot's going, I think it's likely that he is going to end up joining Luke's forces because now he has a motive. He already was lost and didn't know anything about his family background. And then he's thrown into this half-blood world and he immediately loses his sister and he's mad at Percy because Percy didn't protect her. So he now has a motive to hate Percy and maybe hate Camp Half-Blood. So... I can definitely see him joining Luke's cause, which is going to be a huge issue. A hundred percent. I would agree with you that he will fall to them and they might try to use him to kill the Orpheotaurus or try to kill off Percy so that he can be the first one to turn 16. So I think that they will. Yeah, we're, we're not done with Nico. Like he's going to be around. For sure. And then we end the book on a cliffhanger where Grover comes out and says that the god Pan spoke in his head and all he said was, I await you. Yeah, then that's where we finish. That's a cliffhanger. I I have no thoughts on that because we haven't really gotten that much on Pan. 
But I think that, you know, like I said, we'll get more in the future books. Which I just wanted to point out how I guess the gods just love to be brief in their messages, like how Poseidon sent Percy the letter, brace yourself, and now Pan is just like, I await you. Like, they really like to keep their messages nice and concise. Except Artemis. Artemis, she just talks and talks and talks. She's like, I will reward these children. They have been so kind to me. No, don't die. Come join my girl gang. Let me talk about how wonderful they are. I'm like, Artemis, stop talking. Anyway, we still have not gotten any resolution on spies at Camp Half-Blood, and I don't know if we're going to get more of them, but I just, since I mentioned this last time we finished a book and we hadn't gotten any answers, I just want to keep that in mind, that we still have reason to think that there are spies at Camp Half-Blood, but we still haven't gotten any answers. So just to keep that in the back of our pocket as we move into the next book... Anything else you want to mention before we finish, Asia? Nope. I'm just super excited to keep reading. Yeah, let's go. That means we've already finished three books in the Percy Jackson series. Two more to go. So we'll be back next week with the first half of Percy Jackson and the Battle of the Labyrinth. We'll be reading chapters 1 through 10 for next week. So if you're reading along, read those chapters. Yeah, and let us know or just stay in touch with us regarding anything on the Nerd Party website. Just head over to nerdparty.com slash contact and select throwback paperback. You can send us an email there and get in touch with the network on Twitter at joinnerdparty or on Instagram at thenerdparty. To find me, I'm at asiabonia on Twitter and at asia.bonia on Instagram. Yep, and you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at cesheeland. We're a new podcast on the Nerd Party Network, so make sure that you check us out there. And you can also rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Obviously, share it with your friends. I realize we've been saying we're a new podcast for a while, and this is episode 8. So maybe once we get to, once we finish 10 weeks, so that will be episode 12, maybe that's when we'll no longer be a new podcast. What do you think, Asia? I think that sounds like a good plan. Okay. Starting episode 12, we won't call ourselves new anymore. But... Make sure that you're sharing and so that we can, you know, keep building our audience. My, one of my friends who listens to the pod, he texted me a photo because he got his Spotify wrapped for his most binged podcast of the year. And we were it. So let's see if we can get more people on that for 2021. <laughs> anyway, check out the other podcasts on the Nerd Party Network. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.